Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. You can find us at the NevadaIndependent.com. You can find this podcast all over the place. Go on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, subscribe, rate us. As I like to say, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell anyone you meet anywhere. You should be listening to this podcast. It's the best one in Nevada, maybe the best one in the country, potentially the best one in the universe. Wow. That was Elizabeth Thompson, who will be joining me uh, today. She's the managing editor, the heart and soul of the Nevada Independent, since I apparently have neither of those. It's always a pleasure <laughs> to have Some Elizabeth. Some people don't think so, John, but it's not true. <laughs> it's so it's a pleasure, as always, to have Elizabeth here. And this time, for the whole program, we're kind of doing a uh, election preview uh, because we probably will not do a podcast next Monday. See how I did that? Because it's the day before the election. It'll be dated by the time it, it, it got out. But yes. Elizabeth and I are going to talk about uh, what's going on uh, as as the election season comes to a close, and especially w- with a nod that we're going to start w- about early voting, Elizabeth, because uh, we've done, we we're, we are recording this podcast on Monday afternoon, uh, in the middle of the tenth day out of fourteen of early voting. In case people listening don't know, early voting is such a big deal in Nevada that anywhere from sixty to seventy percent or so of the people are going to vote early. This is an unusual turnout uh, in this midterm. It is somewhere between 2010, which was the last midterm uh, with with decent turnout at all in the presidential year of last year, which is about three quarters of that turnout. So some of the patterns are the same. Some aren't. Just the bottom line is, as we're going into the last few days, the Democrats have a lead, fairly sizable lead in Clark County of more than 25,000 votes. And uh, the rurals are going big for the Republicans to the tune of about, I think, 13,000 votes or so. And the Democrats are doing very well in Washoe County, uh, the swing county. So first of all, Elizabeth, welcome uh, to the podcast. So happy to be here. Thank you. I'm happy that you're here, too. Let me ask you a question to start this off that you are not going to expect that I'm going to ask you, Elizabeth. Did you vote early? I did not. Are you going to? No. Why not? I prefer to vote on Election Day uh, just in case anything should happen in the run-up to Election Day that might change my mind about an issue or a candidate. That's a really good reason. I, I think it's happened before. Uh, uh, you know, early voting, uh, before we get into the races, I want to talk a little bit about this. I've been against early voting for a long time for that reason uh, and just because I think Election Day should be a national holiday and I think that, that everyone should go vote and really appreciate the right to vote as opposed to to, to just uh, I'm going to buy a loaf of bread, as I like to say, and I think I'll stop and vote too. And you haven't studied up on the issues or read the Nevada Independent uh, as as you should. Now, I just think uh, it's not contributing to higher turnout. It, it's not accomplishing its stated purpose. And, and I just don't think it's a good thing. The only thing I like about early voting is it provides me so much data as a political analyst <laughs> that it helps me uh, with my predictions. But still, it's a fascinating thing to watch. But I just I don't think it's necessarily good for democracy. Uh, in theory, I agree with you. I think it would be best if we did have a national holiday where certainly all of the governmental entities uh, were closed and the banks were closed and the schools were closed and as many people as possible could just go whatever time of day that day they wanted to vote. And hopefully where uh, employers who had to keep people 
uh, on the rolls would allow some flexibility. Uh, I think most of them do anyway to allow people to uh, take a little break in the middle of the day on election day to, to go vote. And as you rightly pointed out, there's been no increase in turnout just because we've had early voting. So I think it's more of an argument of convenience um, than necessity, it, that which surprises me a little. You would think it would increase turnout, and it was invented, I believe, to try to increase uh, turnout, but that hasn't actually uh, been the case. So I, I can't, um, I can't unfortunately make a strong argument against it. I've had some election officials argue to me, yeah, it hasn't increased it, but imagine if we didn't have it, it would have gone down mm-hmm. even more. And that's you know, you can't really, you can't really you can't prove a negative like that. So 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 we really don't know. Uh, so you and I have both been around a long time. We've watched a, a, a lot of different elections. Before we talk about the specifics, is there anything different atmospherically, you think, with this cycle than others? Well, as you've pointed out on your early voting blog, which I encourage everyone to check obsessively um, from day to day and hour to hour because you update it obsessively about that often. Um, this is Elizabeth complaining about her uh, editing duties increasing because <laughs> of the blog, by the way. Thanks for explaining that to the listeners. Um you know, the, the turnout's unusual in a midterm. I'm not surprised that the Ds are up, you know, 25,000 in Clark. That's about par for the course for about how many people have voted. I'm not surprised by the what we're seeing in the absentees and the rural turnouts, although the GOP effort in the absentees has been a fairly remarkable, as you've pointed out. Uh, I am surprised that the Democrats are winning or holding their own on a day-to-day basis in Washoe County, which is a swingy kind of county. And you would think that in a midterm, the Republicans would have the advantage up there and, and often have in the past. So that's been a bit of a surprise. Do you, what do you attribute this to, uh, this higher Democratic turnout in, in Washoe than we've seen in the past? I just think Washoe County's changed a lot and, and people don't realize it. Uh, when I first started covering politics, Washoe was a reliable Republican county has a sizable Republican registration advantage. Now, we're talking a long time ago. We're talking the mid-'80s, but it stayed that way for some time. Uh, And then it started to get a little bit more balanced out. And now what you have happening is it's just – it's much more of a moderate county than it was before. Uh, People may not realize this. um, When Donald Trump ran against Hillary Clinton and lost the state by about two two points, a little bit more to Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton won – Washoe County, which even two years ago had a Republican advantage by uh, a couple of three points. So uh, it has a mayor now in Hillary Sheevy in Reno, which is not all of Washoe County, but she uh, is a registered nonpartisan, but most people up there think that she leans left and she's a very, very popular mayor uh, up there. You have several um, uh, Democrats on that city council, David Bobsian, who was known as as, as a fairly left-leaning Democrat when he was in the legislature. Uh, and, and so you have you have Washoe County changing. As, as I like to say vis-a-vis uh, Adam Laxalt running for governor, it's not your grandfather's Washoe County mm. uh, anymore, literally. Yeah. So I think, it, I think it's changed uh, a, a little bit. But I guess what I meant, and, and you, you did a good rundown of, of, of what's going on. And really, Nevada is three states, Elizabeth. I've talked about this for a long time, the two urban areas and rurals. And I really commend to everyone uh, the piece that Daniel Rothberg and Jackie Valley did about the three different states and how voters in rural Nevada and Reno and Las Vegas are so different, especially rural versus urban. Uh, they did a beautiful job and uh, uh, kind of a travel log around the state and talking to voters about what their concerns are, how they feel about Donald Trump. 
Trump. I guess what I meant atmospherically uh, about this was not just those numbers, but just how this this election feels different even than a normal midterm. I mean, you think about it. Generally, midterms have lower turnout. Uh, Republicans do better vis-a-vis Democrats than they even do during presidential elections. And the party of that is not the party of the president often does well, especially in congressional seats. But it seems to me emblematic of what's going on in, 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 in America today. Yeah, you thought about uh, Barack Obama in, in, in 2014 and, and there, there was some recoil against him or even in 2010 with the Affordable Care Act and the stimulus and that. But the way that Trump, President Trump, is looming over this election on both sides, uh, turning out the Republican base, especially uh, here in Nevada, in rural Nevada where they love him, and energizing Democrats and animating Democrats in a way that I haven't seen, uh, he is really the most, he is larger than life compared to even someone like Obama who changed the dynamic of, of presidential politics looming over this midterm. This midterm is about Trump no matter how you look at it. Well, he's certainly the most polarizing president of my lifetime. And I think there's no doubt that the emotion that we're hearing and seeing and feeling from voters across the spectrum is more ramped up for that reason. People feel very passionately either for or against uh, this president, either in general or on any number of issues. One of the reasons, though, I'm answering you a little bit circumspectly is that I I wonder if that's going to translate to what we're going to see on Election Day. In other words, it feels like a more emotionally ramped up election. It feels like people are more angry and more upset and more outraged and that more people are either calling for more of what Trump's giving or, you know, fighting against the Trump factor. I'm not sure what that's going to mean on election. I don't know if that's going to translate. We, I'm very curious to see, and I'm less confident than ever, actually, to predict what's going to happen on election day. Only not one just, of us has to do that publicly. Not just publicly. in Nevada, but um, <laughs> uh, just across the country in, some, in many of these congressional races. I guess what I'd say about that is that you can tell that people are amped up because turnout is up across the country for a midterm. And and, I, and you pointed out it's 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 animating Republicans and Democrats in some ways, and it depends state by state. But it, this also shows like the, the recency of memory and the effect on it. Remember back when George W. Bush was around? I mean, I think that the, the folks on the left were pretty anti-Bush after, after Iraq. And uh, some were even uh, unhinged, I think we might use that word, in the same way we talk about some of the right uh, folks uh, being unhinged uh, vis-a-vis Trump. So, but mm-hmm. it, it was, I just think, you know, George W. Bush's, it wasn't about his personality as much as it was his policies. With Trump, it's his, it's his, po- it's his personality. And even Obama, you had a lot of really nasty stuff going on. Listen, I hate to say this, we'll probably get emails uh, on this, but I think the Tea Party got a bad rap in many ways that they were born of racism and all the rest of it. I don't buy that. I went to a Tea Party rally. But there was racism out there, not just necessarily among the Tea Party, towards Obama that was really, really ugly. And I'm just wondering why, besides the fact that it's happening now as opposed to four, six, eight, ten years ago, we feel 
and, and I guess it must be because Trump of Trump's personality and because he is obviously, no matter how you feel about his policies, he's a pathological liar. He says things that no other person in, in modern uh, American history has said as president about the media, about his political opponents. And so so there's been – that I think has, has amped it up in a different way. So that's my monologue. Sure. No, I, I – those are all great points and the – arguments and divisiveness and nastiness that we saw that were racism-based under Obama, I think, were of a different sort than what's going on right now, in part because you have a president who's regularly engaging in rhetoric that, I mean, you could even say he's responsible for starting it. I mean, it started with build the wall, but there's been so much more that has been said now by him and his surrogates that then build the wall. I mean, he went out of his way to try to paint, you know, immigrants, especially those from Mexico, as being, you know, criminals, said some fairly horrible things, painted those that demographic with a broad brush, never tried to walk it back, never tried to apologize for it or say, oh, I was only talking about a small um, number, recently declared himself a white uh, not a white nationalist, but a nationalist, and a lot of people thought they heard, you know, the word uh, white in there. I don't think that's quite fair to him. I, I think it's clear with his tariffs and ramped up trade war that he's not a globalist. He is a nationalist, and I don't think he's talking about race when he says that particular thing, but because he has said those other things— uh, and because uh, he's sending National Guard troops now to the border to deal with what appears to me to be a peaceful caravan from a Central American country that's been ravaged um, by war and, and political unrest, by the way, we're partially responsible for that. So we might want to greet them um, at, at least with a, a, a little bit of friendliness at the border there while we figure out what we're going to do with them. So I, I think before it was the atmospherics because President Obama was black and that brought some nastiness out. But this is different because now we have a, a president that's saying things that are inflaming people. And, there, and as you know, just from being uh, on social media and watching the news programs over the weekend, the, we're having a national debate now about how culpable the president and his surrogates are uh, for, for this horrible shooting uh, that happened at a Jewish synagogue and for this this bomber, this guy who attempted to mail pipe bombs to a dozen or so public figures in, in this the country and had a van plastered with a whole bunch of stickers that kind of reflect some of the stuff that's been coming out of the president's mouth. Yeah, I don't know if we want to spend the entire podcast talking about Trump, although we could, and I do believe that he does loom large over this. But even even if you were to say that you can't peg those two things you mentioned, the recent events with the, the guy mailing all those bombs or the horrific shooting in the synagogue at Trump's feet, and, and I think that you could make a decent case that he has ramped up violent rhetoric to a point where some people could rightly point the finger uh, at him and some of his surrogates, as you point yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, he praised someone for body slamming a journalist, among other things. He he cracks these jokes, or we're not sure if they're jokes sometimes at these rallies. It was pointed out over the weekend by a number of commentators, not not all of them partisan, that most presidents in times of trouble try to be unifying 
uh, and he seems to really get a charge out of being divisive even after these horrible events. I was just going to get to that. That's his whole MO. That's how he's been successful in politics, the politics of division. And all he can do basically after something like this happens is read some statement off of a teleprompter. Uh, he can't He can't emote in the way that Obama could and maybe nobody could, but even George W. Bush uh, could. I mean, certainly Clinton could. In these, but he doesn't see that as his role, which is completely ahistorical. And, and it's there's really, there's a sociopathy there that is really disturbing to me, uh, Elizabeth. But, 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 but you know, what, what's really scary is people want to portray Trump supporters as these rabid, frothing morons sometimes who will believe anything that he says, whether it's a conspiracy theory or a lie or a dog whistle. And yes, part of his base is that way. But the reason that Donald Trump is president is not because of those people. The reason he's president is because he tapped into growing disillusionment and fears about immigration, about jobs being taken by uh, uh, immigrants, both legal and illegal, I, I believe, and the feeling that, that this country wasn't what it once was, which there may be a tinge of racism there, maybe not with some people. Trump tapped into that, and there's a much bigger cohort, not quite in the middle, but, but somewhere there that I think is as significant as the real rabid morons who will, who will just, you know, they wouldn't, as he said, you know, go away from him if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue. And I think that, that, that to group those, that to conflate those two groups is just wrong. It, it's not, it, it's not, not just hyper-partisan. Uh, it, it just, it, it misses the point of why Trump is wh wh where he is right now and why the Republicans, despite it all, and getting back to our, our conversation, have a chance to hold on to the House, will likely hold on to the Senate, because they're a large cohort of people who are responding to what he's doing, and not in just the most base way, I think. Yeah, I think you're, clearly you're right about that, the, and the analysis backs that up um, through issues, polling, and, and so on and so forth, that there is this, I call them this quiet contingent of Trump supporters who... You know, I don't think they support a lot of his inflammatory rhetoric, but they agree with enough of what he is saying and doing with the tariffs and the protectionism and the nationalism and this idea of make America great again because we are slipping. We're slipping in manufacturing. To some degree, we're slipping in tech. China and India were starting to overtake us in some of these areas. Um, the, and these we've been talking about this for decades. So these were not new topics. These are not things that Trump introduced, but he definitely recognized um, that we were at sort of a, a point now, I think, especially in the Midwest and the Rust Belt um, in particular, where some of those jobs going away, people angry and confused, not knowing what they're supposed to do. And then Trump coming in and painting himself as, hey, I'm going to be the fixer. I'm going to I'm going to be the tough guy and I'm going to be the fixer and I'm going to have no mercy and I'm going to take care of this. Um, and, yeah, they 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 went with it. So against that backdrop, we have this – let's talk about one of the races in Nevada where I think it's most obvious where this is all having an effect. And then we'll talk about some other races as well. And that's the U.S. Senate race. And let's go back a ways to, and to refresh people's uh, recollection, as the attorneys say, uh, that before the, 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 the end of filing in the spring, Dean Heller – uh, who had been a, 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 almost a never-Trump guy in 2016 and had not really cozied up to the president since uh, uh, since uh, Donald Trump was was elected, 
was facing a primary from Danny Tarkanian. And the entire argument that Danny Tarkanian was using against Dean Heller is he's not a real Trump guy. He won't support the president. I was there before he was. I never backed away from Trump the way that everybody else did at the end of 2016. And whatever you think of Danny Tarkanian, uh, that was the quote unquote right thing to do politically in a Republican primary. And Dean Heller was in big trouble. I think he would have lost that primary. Of course, his people, others disagree. I really think he would have lost that primary to Danny Tarkanian because what, what, what really got people going in those primaries was do you support the president or not? And, and Heller would have been in big trouble and at least would have had to spend a lot of his war chest to survive and he barely would have survived. So the president pushes Danny Tarkanian out probably at the behest of either Heller or some of his allies and suddenly... Uh, and Danny Tarkini just said this again, uh, just in a piece that was published today or yesterday. Suddenly, he's a big supporter of Donald Trump. And, and then he, he was a big supporter of Trump. Then he was like, I love Trump. And then he was just a, a week or so ago, everything you touch turns to gold, Mr. President. And so this is what I mean when this guy's personality looms so large, Elizabeth. You have Dean Heller essentially saying, you know what? And this, he's probably not alone in this in the history of politics, but I'm going to publicly sacrifice my self-respect to get reelected. I suppose that's one way to look at it. Mm -hmm. um, he, look, Heller got backed into a corner hard and fast um, because of the pending votes over the Affordable Care Act, because it was so close in the Senate when it came down to figuring out what portions of that bill would be repealed or not, whether the whole thing would be repealed or not. The bottom line is that the repeal and replace crew or even the partial repeal crew ended up needing Heller's vote. And Trump, being a very active and involved uh, president, some presidents tend to be a little more hands-off when it comes to Congress. Obama comes to mind. He really let he really stayed at arm's length from Congress as much as possible, but that's not Trump's style. He's in there in the trenches, and he, on national television, he backed Heller into a corner. He threatened him. And threatened, basically <laughs> said, you want to be a senator, don't you, sir? I mean, he said that on right. TV. And the look, you know, people have made fun of that look on Heller's face and called it a goofy look, but I just thought... That's a look of not knowing how to react in a crazy, unforeseeable situation when the president of the United States is threatening your job. I mean, what was he supposed to do? So, um, yeah, really interesting how this all went down. And and Heller, politically, you're right. He didn't have a choice, I don't think, but to um, to cozy up to Trump as much as possible. And I don't doubt that Maybe Trump's made a few overtures privately, maybe vice versa. Maybe they really do like each other better now that they've had a couple of conversations. To me, and I'm curious to see whether this gets reflected on Election Day, it's less about the relationship between Heller and Trump and more about is healthcare still one of these turnout issues and are people going to hold Dean Heller accountable for the fact that he did – I mean, he tried to walk a line and thread a needle, he, but he, he didn't do exactly what he said he was going to do when this all started. Um, and will, you know, will enough of the voters want to hold that against him or will they be more forgiving and you know, perhaps look at his whole, whole record? I'll, I'll be curious to see. And you know, the Democrats are really banking, it's obvious, in the Senate race and even in the congressional races. They are banking on health care 
being a huge, huge issue. We've, you know, I saw so many ads just over the weekend on pre-existing conditions and Jackie Rosen rolled out this ad with this person in Reno who said straight out that Heller made a promise that he um, broke. So the Democrats are really, they're kind of all in on this issue. But I found it really interesting as I was looking at the demographics that lots of people so far in early voting in the 45 and up demographic have voted, and they tend to be the ones who care a lot more about health care as an issue. A lot of the younger folks haven't voted yet, or maybe they're not going to. And if they don't, maybe it might turn out that was a miscalculation on the part of the Democrats to focus as heavily as they did on that issue. It's going to be interesting. The polling certainly backs up health care as being the number one issue that at least Democratic voters uh, care about. And so you can see that's why Jackie Rosen, uh, who we should mention, nobody even knew existed in this state three years ago and suddenly uh, is is close to beating a, 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 an incumbent Republican uh, to win a U.S. Senate seat. That's what really the trade-off is in that race. You get right down to it. It's whether Dean Heller's inconstancy on, on how he was going to repeal Obamacare or not and his terrible job of exposing explaining it, by the way, uh, and the Senator Spineless meme that they have created and I think has been fairly effective, or at least it appears to have uh, been, uh, versus the ability of, of, of Donald Trump to turn out the Republican base to vote for people he likes, that he has embraced, which is, explains exactly what Dean, Dean Heller's political calculation is. The Republican base turnout is going to be enough to save me. If it doesn't, and if, as some of the polling indicates across the country, and there is some evidence of it here, although it's a little bit contradictory, that those undecided and that the, the independents are generally unfavorable to the president, that is probably going to cost Heller the race. If that happens, you will say that that, that was a miscalculation. You know, he he saw Joe Heck in, in, in the last U.S. Senate race here go back and forth on Trump, which I think a lot of people think cost Heck that race. Now, I think he probably would have lost anyhow, although Joe Heck was a really, really good candidate and in many ways a much better candidate than Dean Heller. Uh, he knew his stuff. He, 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 could, he could tell you every bill he voted on. He had obvious principles that he was articulating in that race, but he hurt himself because of, of, of how he went back and forth on Trump at the end. So uh, it's going to be, you know, the, the makeup of the early voting electorate so far, you mentioned the young people, you mentioned the 45. It, it, it's not a great makeup uh, for the Republicans either in some ways, uh, even though those young people are not voting in great numbers, they never do. On, on the other hand, you have a lot of the Republicans looking like they're turning out early and they're reliable so-called inveterate voters while the Democrats are not and they're waiting a little bit. And so once we get more data in, we'll, we'll see maybe what, what's happening. But the, the, there, there's a, there are certain ominous kinds of things for Heller, I think, ominous data in, in, embedded in the, in the top lines in the, in the early voting. But again, there's five more days left. We don't know what election day is going to look like. Sure. And you yourself have, have I don't want to say you've pointed out, but you've asked the question repeatedly on your early voting blog is whether these turnout numbers we're seeing in the rurals being so high if they're cannibalizing their own vote on election day, meaning that Republicans who typically would wait till election day are just happen to be voting early this year, in part because Trump visited uh, the rurals and Laxalt's been through the rurals a few times now, I think, trying to get that vote turnout. So the question is, are we seeing increased Republican turnout and in early voting? And then we'll also see a strong showing from them on election day, 
Or if they are cannibalizing their own numbers, that means that maybe for one of the first times in a midterm, things could really turn on Election Day and turn against the Republicans. We'll have no way of knowing that until Election Day is here. Yeah, and that, that's exactly the point, the, the, the right point to make, Elizabeth, because the Republicans made up a lot of ground and generally do on Election Day, whether it's a presidential or, or a midterm. For instance, they were way behind in, in, in the presidential race uh, in early voting. It was clear in 2016. And then then Hillary only ended up winning by about two points. And I think Republicans made up a lot of ground on, on Election Day. Uh, is that going to happen this year? Even if you assume they are going to make up ground on Election Day, if the Democrats can continue to do what they're doing right now, and, and, and I'm not saying they're going to or not, that's still going to make it very, very close and a long night for, for all of us watching on, on November 6th. But if Democrats are, can make Election Day a wash or win Election Day, there's going to be serious carnage here and elsewhere uh, for the Republicans. You mentioned Adam Laxalt, which is a good transition to, to, to the governor's race, which also has been like the Senate race here. Forget about some of the public polling, which is garbage. We know that it's been a very close race. All the, the, all the campaigns uh, in both those races have had those uh, uh, had them within the margin of error the entire time. Adam Laxalt and Michael Roberson, his running mate, his de facto running mate for lieutenant governor, and Dean Heller, have spent much of the last uh, few weeks, and they'll probably spend the last week not here in Clark County, where all the votes are, not even in Washoe County, although there, although Adam Laxalt is doing an, a, a GOTV event there, and there's another one planned up there. They've been in rural Nevada, and they're not just in rural Nevada because they want to hide from the media, although they're pretty good at that, too. <laughs> they're <laughs> it's a there. byproduct. Yes. They're there. Because of these huge margins that they're racking up in rural Nevada, and people should remember Adam Laxalt was the first candidate in modern Nevada history to win uh, 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 a statewide office while losing both of the urban counties. There is no margin for error in that, Elizabeth. You can't. There is no margin for error because rural counties are still only going to make up, you know, between 15 to 20 percent of the vote. And if it got it to 20 percent, that would really be something. Uh, that is a difficult thing to achieve. And Adam Laxalt did that in a very low turnout very low turnout midterm when the Democrats had a disastrous uh, cycle. Uh, and even after they had a disastrous cycle, uh, Adam Laxalt and Crescent Hardy, who had the two biggest upsets, still barely won their races. So this is a strategy with almost no margin for error, but they know they have to be out in rural Nevada. Uh, so give your take first on, on the governor's race and watching it. Steve Sislak is the Democratic candidate, longtime Clark County Commissioner. So... There's so much to say about so little um, in this in this race because you know there hasn't been a debate first of all between the two candidates, which is outrageous, which is just appalling and unbelievable, and yet there we have it. Laxalt avoids the media unless it's friendly media, and sometimes even then, um, at every opportunity. Sisolak's been fine with the media as far as I can tell. He doesn't go out of his way to avoid them. But I think there's been less media access to both candidates because Laxalt kind of set the tone for this. And because he's not talking to the media all the time, Sisolak doesn't have to respond all the time. So they're they're just kind of out there doing their own thing on the campaign trail. It's a very simplistic campaign on Laxalt's part. It's basically a three-pronged campaign. Number one, we don't want to be like California, whatever that means. I guess that means we don't want high taxes and big big government and all the other, I don't know. I Beautiful can't, coastline drives. I can't drives. list, right. <laughs> I mean, I hate to feed into your humorous <laughs> rhetoric on this because I understand the sensibility that he's 
trying to appeal to with a practically bankrupt pension system, as an example, very high taxes of all kinds in California, as an example. These are the less great things about um, California. And it's not just Laxalt. There are Republican governors playing this up all over the Mountain West, uh, actually saying, hey, we just don't want to be like California. I think that plays well with their base. I don't think anyone else cares. Um, the second piece of the Laxalt campaign is I'm going to put $500 million into education and continue the good work that Governor Sandoval has done. That sounds wonderful. If I believed him, A, and if there were $500 million available, B, um, to do that, which there isn't, because as you've pointed out, when you pieced through the likely revenue and through the budget that we're probably going to see coming in from all the agencies, there's not going to be near anywhere near $500 million, you know, extra just kind of floating around to put into education, which means if he's serious, which he's probably not, but if he is, he's going to have to slash some budgets or raise taxes. Now, we know he's not going to raise taxes. I, I can't imagine, and we'd have to all slip into an alternate universe for that to, ha to happen. Is he going to try to slash budgets? And is a Democratic-controlled legislature going to let him control that and get away with that? I don't think so. So we could just have a big stalemate for the most part when it comes to spending and budgeting and education up at the legislature. But I'm not sure the average voter even followed what I just said for the last three minutes, never never mind, you know, thought through, you know, all the ins and outs of it. And then the other thing is that he's just trying he's tried to paint himself as a tough attorney general, you know, who made some progress on the rape kit backlog, as an example, and who has stood up for Nevada's land rights and water rights and this kind of thing. Again, that plays very well with his base. How much that appeals to the Democrats, I don't know. But as you just pointed out, he's really only campaigning in the rurals. They eat all that stuff up. So that's probably, you know, that's working for him to a point. Um, one thing I will say, even though Laxalt is not campaigning in Clark County, I was a little surprised. I don't watch much TV, but I actually did have the TV on over the weekend because I was watching the World Series. Um, there were a lot of anti-Sisolak ads some paid for by the Laxalt campaign and some paid for by the Governor's Association, really going after Sisolak hard as a corrupt politician and a tax hiker. And I thought, wow, if people believe these ads or if it sways even a certain portion of the nonpartisans against you know, maybe the Republicans are – obviously that's part of what they think their strategy has to be. And since Laxalt's not down here campaigning, campaigning in person, it seems to me like the strategy is just to make, try to drive Sisolak's negatives up in Clark and, and potentially Washoe as much as they can, right? I, I think actually, I think you laid that out really well, all of it. Um, and, and, and that is absolutely what they're trying to do with Sisolak. Uh, the Clark County Commission is not a good place to run for statewide office. Uh, I've told my Harry Reid telling Rory Reid story that many, many times. I won't bore our <laughs> podcast listeners with that. Well, the but, podcast listeners haven't heard of that much. Well, it, but Harry Reid told Rory Reid it's a political boneyard. Uh, you'll never become governor or senator from the commission because you get half the audience mad every time you have a meeting because you're not filling in a pothole or you're zoning a 7-Eleven next right. to their house or something. People remember that stuff more than they're going to remember what your position is on school choice. Yes. So, so uh, it's a tough position to run from, and 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 you also have the Clark County Commissioners being the embodiment of Southern Nevada, so a uh, power, and so that's tough to get votes outside of Southern. So he's starting with a real problem there. Steve Sislak is, and you have the issue of pay to play in local government, where whether it's real or perceived, the fact that you're taking a huge amount of money from developers and then approving their projects is something that's going to seem unseemly 
to, to, to a lot of uh, average voters, which is why Laxalt, and this was a smart move, uh, although they didn't execute it very well or thoroughly enough, I don't think. They started with the Shady Steve, and they used some of the pay-to-play stuff on a website. They didn't do nearly as much of it on TV as I thought they were going to do, and they especially missed an opportunity, Elizabeth, when, when Sislak spent all his money in the primary to beat Christian Kiliani. He was dark for a month, and they really didn't do a very good... That's when you, that's when you put somebody away. That's what Harry Reid did to Sharon Angle after the primary uh, in, in 2010. I really think Lax... I don't know if he could have put him away, but he really could have done some he serious damage. He could have done some damage. damage there, and he had the money to do it. I, yeah. I was surprised myself that they didn't go hard after Big strategic and use that opportunity. Well, maybe it wasn't. I mean, if Laxalt wins, then it wasn't, right? Well, <laughs> you can make errors and still win, too, I suppose. I suppose, sure. But, but, but the, the point about the education, I think we shouldn't get... Uh, we should make this clear to people. You're absolutely right about this $500 million. It's not doesn't really exist. But it's emblematic of the Laxalt campaign and, and of Laxalt himself, which he just has no clue as to w- what the state budget is. He has no clue as to many well, he either state doesn't ha- issues. I think he has a clue at this point because you've written about it so many times. Does I'm he sure. read the Andy? Well, someone probably reads it to him. So um, I, th- I bet he does have a clue at this point. But once you've gone down that road and made that a platform of your campaign, then what are you going to do? That's so very true. He, I think he had to. I think he had to just continue on through with that rhetoric and say, "Oh, oh well, you know, when I get elected, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out when I get there, and I'll, you know, if I can't get it done, I'll blame the Democrats." No, and I, and I and I think that's absolutely right. But but when I say that that he doesn't understand the budget and some of his people around him should have a better understanding. He read something in the Indian. and Michelle Rendell's was the first to write about this, our reporter, that there's going to be $500 million in extra revenue because of the way that the state's economy has been purring along. That's likely to be it. And that was true. But what they didn't, and so they immediately said, oh, good. Now we, because education is the biggest issue to people in the government. We can say we're going to put $500 million and we won't have to raise taxes without realizing that a lot of that money is just going to evaporate because of so-called roll-up costs and the federal government's not going to pay as much for the Affordable Care Act. That's All kinds of things are going to eat that money if it's going to be gone, as, as Governor Sandoval's chief of staff, Mike Wilden, told me. Now, they did a very smart thing by putting his wife on TV talking about doing that. I thought that was very clever, but it's all nonsense. He can't put, unless he's going to, as you put it, slash budgets or raise taxes, neither of which he's going to be able to do. That's no small amount of money. The rest of the stuff appealing to the base and the rest. But he said some other stuff that indicate to me that he has not prepared for this race. He made a huge error on the night of his primary win with Terry Russell, the longtime TV reporter up north, and essentially having no clue that the state's abortion rights statute had been embedded by the voters in 1990s. And we're going to take a look at that, which, of course, energized the left and Planned Parenthood and those folks. And so, listen, uh, Steve Sislak's been very careful. I, 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 you know, he's not going to be confused with Daniel Webster in a debate. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm not so sure that he wanted to debate either. But clearly, Laxalt did not want to debate him. It is, it is an absolute joke. And even Governor Sandoval has said how outrageous it is. It's been decades since this has happened. Sandoval debated Rory Reid many times. Uh, you know, uh, he didn't have to debate the winner of the of the de- of Democratic primary in 2014 because that person was named none of the above. But uh, uh, <laughs> but, but seriously, but seriously. Seriously, Sandoval, I mean, he, he gets it. This is by far the most important race in the state. It's much more important than the U.S. Senate race, much more far-reaching impact on average Nevadans' lives. And listen, Sislak's been careful. He's danced around the issue of taxes himself. He's said contradictory things. He's played it like a consummate politician. And this is versus Laxalt, who clearly has no knowledge of, of what a governor does or, or, or the state budget or the state. He hasn't even been here uh, that long. It's very distressing. 
distressing. But we don't want to go on all day about this, but, and I haven't thought about it just this way, but people need to know this too, Elizabeth. Governor Sandoval, who was by far the most popular elected official in the state, who is, last time I looked, despite what some of the rabid righties say, a Republican, and who's one of whose three political idols was Paul Laxalt, whom he worked for way back when, is refusing to endorse the fellow Republican named Laxalt, who would be his successor. That is astonishing. It is astonishing. Frankly, I've been surprised that the national press hasn't picked up on it more frequently or with more interest because it's it's amazing. Um, now, it makes sense if you live here and you realize that Sandoval is a very centrist Republican, a compassionate conservative, I would say, even more than than most who you might label um, that way. He, It's clear to me, um, both from interviewing him one-on-one and observing his choices and actions over the years that He did care deeply about making Nevada a better state that included improving the safety net for health insurance, for people living in poverty, and for children. It's why he was a governor who signed on uh, to the Medicaid expansion. Um, He he didn't wholeheartedly embrace the Affordable Care Act, but that was really an instance where we got to see what a thoughtful governor he was because he came out and explained exactly what he did and didn't agree with in the federal law and then said, here's the decision I'm making for the better men of Nevada. And he's done that a number uh, of times. He's a completely different political animal um, than Laxalt, not just in terms of their difference on the spectrum because Laxalt, is a, he's a hard right winger as far as I'm um, concerned. There's n- nothing moderate comes out of Adam Laxalt's uh, mouth, but also because Sandoval is a bit of a policy wonk. He does care about the details. He does take the time to study up on the issues and to surround himself. You mentioned Mike Wilden, but Wilden's not the only one. Sandoval has a group of very smart, savvy, policy, adept people at his beck and call. He's put together a nice team. And Again, when you contrast that with Laxalt's team, the differences couldn't be more stark. I don't see any evidence that 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 Adam Laxalt interested not not only in himself learning policy, but surrounding himself with people who could perhaps um, fill that gap for him. And so it, it makes sense to me that Sandoval is not a fan and is not going to endorse. But yes, in, in terms of the big political picture and the way these things usually go, where a Republican's trying to pass the baton to a Republican or vice versa, it's remarkable, uh, the situation that we see ourselves in. And that should tell voters a lot. Yeah, I wonder if it does. Uh, anyway, the one factor in that that we haven't talked about is, uh, and I, I got an email from a guy I know, and, and he told me he was up in rural Nevada this weekend, and he he was astounded by the number of Ryan Bundy signs that he saw all over the place. I've heard this from other people too. Ryan Bundy, of course, is Cliven Bundy's son, part of the family that is famous for creating a new sagebrush rebellion near near Bunkerville. They hate the federal government. They think they've been, uh, they, even though they owe a million dollars in grazing fees, they think they don't owe them because the gov- federal government has no authority. It's total throwback uh, to, 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 to the old days in Nevada. And the question is, what kind of factor is Ryan Bundy going to be, especially in a in in a place like Nye County where Adam Laxall can ill afford to lose votes with the rural landslides that we were talking about. Uh, there are some people who think – I've heard all kinds of speculation from that. Ryan Bundy could win Nye County all the way 
to uh, he's just not he's going to peter out by election day and he'll get one percent of the vote. I, I I think it's somewhere in between there probably, uh, but but all the polling so far shows him four to six percent in the polls. Although third party candidates often fade by election day, two or three percent could be a problem for Laxalt. Well, yeah, and there's another layer to that because even if Ryan Bundy, let's say he only gets two or maybe even three percent, which wouldn't necessarily by itself be a threat to Laxalt. We still have this none of the above category in Nevada that always pulls to me, I guess I should get used to it, but I'm always surprised by how many votes go to that category. So if you have enough disgruntled voters in the none of the above category uh, and enough of the people who have caught the Bundy fire voting for Bundy and you add those two together, that could be a problem uh, for Laxalt in the rurals and that's he can least afford it there. Future podcasts, we're going to talk about uh, none of these candidates and how I think it's a terrible thing, uh, even though it's a classic Nevada thing. It's been around for 40-plus years. I think it was the mid-'70s it was instituted. We're the only state. It makes no sense to have it unless it really had teeth. And by teeth, I mean that if, 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 if it were to win, as it has, and sometimes you have to have a new election and you can't have any of the same candidates or, or, or something like that. As it is, it, it, it's just meaningless protest vote. You should vote for somebody. But that's— uh, that's the end of John Ralston's uh, rant on none of the above. That's the mini podcast, <laughs> uh, but we will do a none of the above eventually. So, uh, CD we, races. We, we've actually, we've actually uh, gone uh, 45 minutes or so already, Elizabeth, and I thought we wouldn't be able to fill a half an hour. I, I, I acknowledge that. Boy, you talk a lot, Elizabeth. Anyhow. Oh then, knows that's not true. <laughs> the bottom line. Let's, let's talk about <laughs> just a few other things real quickly. You mentioned the congressional races. There's two, again, Nevada is unique in that we have uh, 40% of our congressional districts are uh, actually uh, Republic- Democratic seats that the Republicans are trying to flip. Early voting numbers look terrible for Crescent Hardy and CD4. I don't think he's going to be able to overcome that. It was obvious in 2014 that he was going to make a race of that because the numbers were so bad for Stephen Horsford. The other race, Congressional District 3, Danny Tarkanian, here we go again, uh, who barely lost that race in a presidential year yet to Jackie Rosen actually has a chance against Susie Lee. Uh, the well-known community advocate, education advocate and philanthropist and the owner of many houses, apparently. <laughs> How dare she? <laughs> and a jet. But uh, I, I guess what I'd say about that is that the numbers are slightly leaning toward the Democrats right now as we record this on a Monday, but that, that one could flip. Wouldn't it be something if Danny Tarkanian finally got a W? Yeah, and he could send a thank you note to Trump for pushing him out of that Republican primary and politely suggesting, ha-ha, um, that he run in CD3 instead. By the way, one of the biggest congressional districts, and by biggest I mean population-wise, in the nation. So he would be uh, representing uh, a large swath of the Nevada and American uh, electorate on his sixth try for Depends how you count. The, 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 the TV commercials say seven. I think to be fair to Danny, it's only his sixth try. They say six. seventh because he filed for regent and then withdrew uh, yeah, one year. Yeah, I so don't count that one. We, we give him a mulligan on that one. So it's, <laughs> You're allowed to withdraw. Yes, he's, a, he's only 0 for 5, and then he has a chance to win. And I do think he has a chance to win sure. uh, uh, because, as I said, he lost that district by 2,000 votes in a presidential year in which it was a big year for Democrats, yeah. although Trump won that district by one point. He's got the um, name recognition. Uh, yeah. People know him. I mean, he's campaigned enough, for goodness sake, across the state and in that district. He has been uh, active. And although he's gotten hit with many of the same 
negative attacks in the past, that could actually play to his favor because people are used to it. I, there, you know, the, we, we, there were a couple of news stories this cycle, but some of the negative attacks on him, some of the complaints about his record had been rolled out before, and so they probably don't have quite as much oomph. And Susie Lee, I mean, those of us who live in the media political bubble know who she is, um, but she... I think if she didn't manage to knock on an awful lot of doors in that district or find some way to get her name in front of a lot of voters, he, I, I give him the advantage in, in that race for those reasons. Yeah, I think I think he has a chance. And I think that the Democrats are concerned about, about that race, even though the National Republican Congressional Committee at one time thought that CD4 was a better bet than CD3. Or a couple other quick things. Uh, I say quick. We'll go as quickly as we can. Uh, uh, we mentioned the governor's race, so we really should talk about what the legislative matrix is going to look like. Uh, the Democrats are going to control both houses. Everybody concedes that. Adam Laxalt has, I think, very smartly used that as, listen, I'm, I'm the bulwark against them doing all kinds of crazy stuff, which, you know, to some extent is probably true, although I don't think Steve Sislak is the far-left liberal that he's being painted as. But no, he's, he's mu- not. He's much more likely to sign a tax bill or sure. other kinds of pro-labor kind kinds of things than, than Laxalt is. And the question is, how big will the Democratic margins be? And if you look at the early numbers uh, so far, the, the Republicans have essentially already conceded one of the state Senate seats that they need. The question is whether they can get to a supermajority in both houses, making Adam Laxalt's presence essentially irrelevant vis-a-vis the legislature if he were to win. Uh, and so they essentially have 12 seats already. The other two seats are are, are still toss-ups. And in the Assembly, actually, it looks like the Republicans are going to pick up a seat uh, uh, and so the Democrats are going to have to net uh, uh, they're going to have to win three other ones that they don't hold now to actually get the uh, super two more, excuse me, to get the super majority. So uh, that's going to be really an interesting session uh, to watch. I want to tell everybody that we just secured housing for our, our, our team of reporters that's going to be up there. They are looking forward to it, covering it as much as we are, I think. No? Yes, absolutely. We love, uh, we're crazy. We still love Carson City. We love being at the legislature. We'll send Riley, Michelle, and Megan uh, up there just as we did uh, for the inaugural year of the Andy. And we've got Daniel Rothberg up north who can help from time to time as well. So however uh, those seats go or don't go on election day and, and whichever way the governor race uh, swings, we will be up there reporting every minute of it to you, our, our dear readers and listeners. I, I just I think it's so great that we have those three and Daniel this time. Uh, there's no way I've covered the legislat- every legislature since 1987. I'm dating myself. Uh, but there's never been a better team of reporters to cover the legislature than we have. And yeah, I'm bragging about my staff, but I really believe Yeah, there's it. a lot of institutional knowledge among the staff. If you add up uh, your years with their, the years of those three uh, reporters and then, you know, slip Daniel in, in, into the mix that we definitely are going to have the most uh, seasoned team as a whole covering the legislature and we love doing it. Finally, uh, our, 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 the last topic uh, uh, before we close. Uh, you said you watched some TV this weekend. You were watching your Red Sox uh, win, win the World Series. Yes. Uh, I bet in addition to seeing uh, uh, Adam Laxalt and Steve Sislak and Dean Heller and Jackie Rosen you heard a lot about NV Energy and its dastardly monopoly, did you not? I did, and I thought it was interesting that the no on three people just continue to hammer. I, I, I they've got to feel pretty almost safe, I would think, at this point. They're though. way ahead in the polls. Every poll I've seen, although you and I do not always 
kowtow to conventional wisdom or polling, but the polling has been so consistent on this issue that you just, you can't, if you're a sensible person, you can't say anything except that the no on three people are, are, are winning. But yes, I was surprised and I've been surprised that the yes on three campaign didn't suddenly decide at some point I mean, I thought it would happen at least a couple of weeks before early voting started that the that the yes on three team would finally say, you know what, we're getting our clocks cleaned, but let's not give up. We can still win this campaign. You know, let's put some great ads together. I did see a couple of pro. There were some yes on three ads, but not as many as the no on three. I and, saw uh, more yes on three this week. Did you? Uh, maybe we were watching two different channels. Uh, actually, uh, and and. and at least I thought I did. And what I found really interesting is there were some really good ads for Yes on 3, uh, you know, knocking down the monopoly and Envy Energy spending your money to try to keep its monopoly, which isn't exactly right. But still, it was good messaging. The ads were well executed. I'm thinking like... Is it too little too late yeah, though? Yeah, probably. Why? I, it just, it stunned me. Uh, I think that campaign has, has been just incredibly poorly executed by the pro question 3. I mean, to, to lose after you had a 70... Percent plus victory two years ago to lose this fight where you have the natural advantage and the greatest boogeyman ever in in the power company which everyone you know at some point or another is is cursing uh, that is really something yes Warren Buffett has a ton of money but one of the guys supporting it uh, a guy named Sheldon Allison has a ton of money too yeah and, and no their money was there if they wanted they, to spend they it. got outspent two to one it looks like it's going to fail which means that again watch the legislature next time because this is going back. Uh, into that uh, yes. bailiwick. So anyhow, we've talked about early voting and just about all the major races. Uh, you should follow the, the Nevada Independent uh, on, on the website, thenevadaindependent.com. Follow us on Twitter. And most importantly, if you really want to know what's going on on election night, uh, Elizabeth and I are going to be again hosting a, a webcast from UNLV, uh, and we're going to have all the reporters there. We're going to have video packages, but most of all, we're going to have the results and, and analysis of the results before anybody else. We will. Uh, I want to add to that. So people always say, well, how do I do that? How do I watch that? So just go to the Indie TV page on our website. It couldn't be easier to find. When we go live, that video stream will be live right at the top of that page. John and I will be there all night uh, talking about what what happened with early voting because we'll have all the numbers by then, kind of giving a rundown on the races, talking about any new developments in the campaigns. And then as those voting numbers start to come in, we'll be, we'll be calling uh, those out. We'll be calling the races throughout the night. You, there's no one that will be doing wall-to-wall coverage like us. So if you're a true election night uh, or political junkie you're going to want to watch. I do want to mention, too, because we didn't get time to talk about all the ballot questions. If the listeners will go to our website and go to our Election 28 section, we have added explainers for every ballot question, uh, both in text form and in video form. So if you haven't voted or you know that people are talking about this and kind of uh, wanting information, uh, make sure you go check out the ballot question explainers, Those those really kind of... Uh, encapsulate what you need to know about each question to make up your mind if you haven't done so. I'm glad you reminded everybody of that. Don't forget that that you, Indie TV on election night. It's going to be the place to get results. Trust me, you will be sorry if you don't watch us because we'll be giving the the best 
best outlook. We'll call the races before uh, anybody else does, I'm sure, too, because of our analysis. Elizabeth, you know, I have to tell you, I wish we could do this every week, You just you and me and, and, and uh, talking about stuff. I mean, this is just like when Elizabeth and I sit at the bar chatting about stuff. <laughs> it's uh, pretty close. It's, it's pretty That's close. Sad. And I think she disagrees with me a little bit more at the bar. Probably. Anyhow, thanks for coming, Elizabeth. Thanks. Uh, and that is all the time we have for Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. Uh, I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. As I told you earlier, you can find this podcast on most of the platforms now. Go on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or, or some of the other ones that the young folks might know about that I don't know anything about. And subscribe, rate us, tell us how wonderful we are. You can also hear this podcast at 6 a.m. You have insomnia. You've been out all night uh, partying in in, in Vegas, get up at six o'clock in the morning on Sunday. <laughs> Watch us on 91 point. Uh, listen, excuse me, it was at 91.5 Jazz and more. If you don't, if you have insomnia, well, never mind. I'm not going to make that joke, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for listening. As always, I want to thank our wonderful hosts uh, here at the KUNV. I love our, 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 the person who makes us sound good, which Sam has to watch us through a window here. You guys can't see it. How she stays awake during this podcast is makes us I have no idea and of course I want to thank it. Sam sends this uh, file up to our, our guy up in Reno, Joey Lovato, uh, who was our fantastic producer. He, he helped produce a lot of those videos uh, you will see uh, on, on the website as well and Joey Lovato does the impossible and makes us all sound podcast smooth well almost all of us. I'm John Ralston the editor of the Nevada Independent thanks for joining us. Thank you.